0: Hope you're having a great holiday week. I am off on adventures, so this is a best of edition of the Clark Howard Podcast. I hope you enjoy it and that you have an enjoyable holiday week. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Shore. Our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Before I get started, I want to make sure you know that we have free, emphasis on free daily newsletters from both Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com that are filled with money-saving advice that you can trust and deals that are awesome, at least I think so. It's easy to sign up. If you decide that you don't like our newsletters, we make it just as easy to dump us and unsubscribe from the newsletters. Just go to clark.com slash newsletter and you can sign up for whichever ones you want. You know we're about you being empowered with knowledge that you can put to work in your life so you make better financial decisions. That's what we're about. And the home market has done a hard pivot that benefits some And it's been a crushing blow for others, namely those wishing to buy a home. And I want to talk about some trends in the market that are actually your friend if you are trying to buy a home. Also, I want to talk about student loans now that payments have come back into play. Gosh, that was a long payment holiday. What's the drill now if you're faced with student loans? And also, there's a type of student loan I never, ever, ever want you to take out unless there's an overriding reason for doing so. But now let's talk about the home market. So builders are seeing and sellers are seeing what's known as price resistance. Sellers of used homes, existing homes, are on seller's strike. We've talked about the frozen market for a good while. And just briefly to recap, if you've never heard me say this, people in homes that might normally cycle through aren't doing so because if they have a mortgage, they got a mortgage at maybe two, three, at most, probably 4%. And if they sell, move somewhere else, they're now looking at a mortgage of 7% plus or minus. It makes them. Frozen in place where they are, even if there'd be a more suitable neighborhood or house or whatever to move to. So, what it's done is it's made the new home construction market a much bigger part of the decision making process for first time home buyers or even for repeat home buyers. And then those builders are seeing a problem with price resistance. As the buyers come in, they'd love to buy in their neighborhood but they can't afford to. So for the first time, pretty much since the 1960s, home sizes are going down instead of continuing their relentless march bigger. The very nature of how homes are being designed is going through a massive change. One of the things that is dying along the way from what I've been reading is bathtubs. I mean, who would ever think about the fact that a bathtub forces a higher cost on a builder and ultimately a buyer because it means the bathroom to have usable space has to be larger because of the space that tub takes up. And that has led to the three-quarter bathroom where there's a stand-up shower, a sink, and a toilet, and a lot of building plans back to Jack and Jill bathrooms where for a while it had been the thing where every bedroom would have its own bathroom. Now going back to what was known as a Jack and Jill, where two bedrooms connect to a bathroom and share it. And getting rid of whatever vestige there was of formal living rooms, gone, gone. Formal dining rooms, gone, gone. And so shrinking that square footage with one wrinkle More and more builders are building for smaller numbers of people in a house, building more bedrooms than they may have been building. Smaller bedrooms, but they're not really bedrooms. They're designed to be home offices for people that are working part-time or full-time from their home instead of from an office facility. So less square footage, less for you to maintain, less for you to heat and cool, I think there's advantage to this because the irony is homes have been twice as large as they were two generations ago, and the number of people living under the roof of those houses, less than half that were living in them two generations ago, meaning we now have more than four times the square foot per person in a new construction home than we had two generations ago. And a lot of those rooms, you ask people, well, how often do you use this room, this room, this room, this room? And what's the answer, Krista? Never. Never? Cobwebs in them? (laughs) So this is necessity being the mother of invention. The other trend that you may find is or is not your friend is in a lot of markets in the country where townhouses were not part of the picture Townhouses are part of the thing. I saw a development recently by Toll Brothers. Do you know who they are? No. Toll Brothers is a new construction company that builds for the mass affluent market for uh, higher income, not super wealthy, but higher income individuals and has always been big single family homes. They're now building a lot of townhomes to get the price points down where people can afford to buy them. So what our expectations had been with homes going through a significant change now brought about by increased construction material costs that have moderated, increased labor costs for construction workers have not moderated, land costs up, and interest rates up has led to necessity being the mother of invention, to changes in what we actually focus on with a home to make them more affordable at a time of high interest rates. And I'm going out on a limb. I shouldn't go out on. If you're a Clark Stinks extraordinaire, get your pen or your computer keyboard ready because I'm going to predict interest rates on mortgages headed down, not yet, but when they do head down, They're going to go lower than I thought before. I think they're going to hit somewhere in the fives. That will be the new bargain interest rate. So if you take out today's interest rate at seven or so percent, I believe there will be an opportunity in the next 24 to 36 months to refi. Mark your calendar and call me out as wrong if it turns out I've blown it.
1: All right, let's get to a couple of uh, house-related questions. This one's from Tom in Connecticut. Recently retired, my longtime partner and I currently live in Connecticut and would like to downsize, but inventory is almost non-existent where we live, and we're fussy about where and what we would like probably our last house to be. A very experienced real estate agent told us our mortgage-free house is probably worth $700,000 or more. A longtime friend of mine is going to have one of his very nice rental houses available, for $3,200 a month plus utilities on two acres. We currently have a combined net worth of over $3 million and no debt. Does, wow. it, does it make sense to sell the house in the spring, put the money in a 5% bank account, giving us $2,900 a month towards the rent on my friend's place, and wait until more inventory comes in on the market? Even though we'd have to move twice, it would seem we could afford this, and it would give us more choices to buy in the future. Your advice to live below your means and invest properly helped to make this option possible, and I can't thank you enough.
0: Well, Tom, thank you for that, and congratulations to you and your partner for having been such incredible savers. Seriously. Having $3 million? Is yeah. that what you said, $3 mm-hmm. million? Wow. I mean, if you look at the 4% withdrawal method in retirement, that means you can withdraw 120000 a year, more or less, and never run out of money, and of course, inflation adjusting over the years with that. Selling the house, you have not made a compelling argument to me about selling your house yet. It is mortgage debt-free. It has a great value to it, $700,000, and to do an interim move into a rental your math is okay but not perfect because the 2900 by your estimation you'd earn on a savings account is taxable as ordinary income. You're going to end up based on whatever your tax rate is with a meaningful amount less than a net 2900 after that savings is taxed. So unless you just want out of the house and you want to ride the market for a while I would not do this double move. I would wait till market conditions improve or you find what would be an appropriate replacement house for you potentially uh, downsizing and then you make the double move. You sell at that time the house you're in and instead of moving twice, the double move is you sell your house, move into the new one you find that inventory pops up. You say, that's where we want to live. Boom, boom because you're not affected by the high interest rates since you'll be paying cash for whatever you buy as a replacement.
1: This one's from Alicia in North Carolina. We had a drunk driver crash into our house at at 4.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning. We're all okay, but it came entirely too close to our baby's room, and the road that is pointed directly at our house isn't moving anytime soon. We've been renting while our home is being repaired, but we're thinking we'd like to sell our house and move. Should we wait until our house is fully repaired to do this? Or do you think we might be able to find a rent to buy option? We're a family of five, three kids, five and under. And while I'm thankful we have a place to stay, it's hard living temporarily. Our mortgage rate and payments are very low on our first house, but I just don't think we can keep living there long-term. We want to get out, but I'm extremely worried about the high interest rates. We have some money saved up, but not enough for 20% down with the high home prices here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please help us, Clark. We miss having a home
0: so much. So, gosh, we got a lot to unpack here, Alicia. First things first, if you did decide you wanted to sell the house, wait till it's repaired because people see what they see. And if they see that, well, that whole side of the house is having to be rebuilt because a car came flying in the house, that's not a good technique to get a good price for selling your house. Uh, I would absolutely wait until it is fully repaired, and you've got a fresh canvas there for people to look at. Second, it's not a good time for you to make this switch, because as you said, you've got a very low interest rate, and you'd be going into a high one somewhere else. Uh, Rent to own, I'm not a fan of, they generally don't work out. I kind of boxed you in, right? So you've got the psychological damage, the fear that is visceral for a parent that your precious baby was in danger of dying from a car running off the road. Crazy question, is there an appropriate place to build uh, what would look like an ornamental wall that would provide protection for your baby's bedroom, if a car did run off the road.
1: I was thinking that too. You know, even if you could put those cement, like pole things that come up and disguise them with some bushes that that stop cars in like a security area, if there's something like that, temporary. I mean,
0: anything would be cheaper if you could build a safety barrier in some way would be much cheaper, much less disruptive to your finances than picking up and moving. And there will be a point, as I just mentioned a minute ago, that I believe interest rates will be more favorable, but I would prefer if you can consider these ideas that you stay instead of moving at this time.
1: Okay. Quick one from Kathy in Georgia. The finance department at a Toyota dealership in my city stated that you bought a 10-year extended warranty for your daughter's car. (laughs) That didn't seem right to me. Did you? For what reason? Since I did agree to a smaller extended warranty.
0: (laughs) Okay. What's the chance I bought that?
1: I would say zero.
0: Zero. Now I'm neutral on auto extended warranties. And that's like the only one I'm neutral on. I hate all extended warranties generally. And no way that I ever would have bought one on a car. Number one. Number two on a Toyota? Are you kidding me? Toyotas historically have been so reliable that there's not a chance, not even a scintilla of chance that I would ever buy one. And this has been a refrain over the years. Uh, We had the thing where Best Buy had a fake Clark thing that showed me buying these products I hadn't bought and showed these extended warranties that I bought on the fictional items. And when people would raise my name as an objection, the Best Buy salesperson would pop it around and say, see, Clark says that, but that's not what he does. I mean, this has been a problem forever. Because retailers make more money from extended warranties than anything else they sell. That's where the money is. So they're going to tell you any story they can dream up to try to get you to buy an extended warranty? And the answer is, no, I didn't buy their extended warranty. And no, I'm never buying an extended warranty on anything because the math is so terrible. Eight cents back in benefit for every dollar paid in, meaning that every dollar of extended warranty, the math says overall, people lose 92 cents of every one of those dollars Don't fall for them. Don't buy them. And when the TV salesman tells you, aren't you going to protect your investment? A TV is not an investment. Enough said. Coming up ahead, we got to talk about student loans for people coming up, going into schools of various types, and for people who already have them. This will shock you, but new data shows that the net cost of going to colleges is no longer going up. I mean, they may list a fake retail price for tuitions, but there's such resistance right now for multiple reasons. One, demographics. We have a smaller number of people coming to college age, and so Colleges have fewer people to fill their classrooms, enrollments falling at any number of universities, and the universities know they have a pricing problem. Plus, people are learning how deadly student loan debt is. So colleges are making deals, relatively speaking. Tuition costs versus family income as a percent of family income declining now, it is not as dire a story as it was. But there's a dilemma so many families face, and that is, is it worth it to pay extra to go to what seems to be a prestigious college, or is it better to hold the costs down and hold the borrowing down? Well, according to Researchers, and there was a really nice write up about this in the LA Times that the major that your son or daughter, or if you yourself are the student or would be student, the major, the course of study is much more important than the prestige of the university. So if you are going after a skill that is in high demand, STEM, and you are getting That skill that is in high demand in a variety of engineering, science, tech, medicine, to name four broad fields. If you are getting a skill set, the workplace really values and pays nice money, you can go to a local college, state-supported school with very low tuition, And maybe never have to borrow a dime in student loan money. You can go into the military and use benefits you receive from serving your country as a thank you back to you to provide you with educational benefits and avoid student loans. You can do my thing of going to community college for a couple of years and then transferring to a four-year or junior and senior year, and reduce the cost of college by an enormous amount. And something that's become very popular in most of the nation states is four-year colleges that are designed kind of like community colleges in terms of their cost structure, but four-year colleges where you don't even have to worry about transferring somewhere else. And these four-year colleges which are a big deal in California, Texas, and Florida, three of the nation's most populous states, and have forever been a thing in New York State, you can go to a four-year state school that you could commute from home. So, yes, it feels like a little bit like high school, but even if it feels a little like high school, you're in college at very low cost, and you're coming out with a degree. People from the Northeast U.S. are familiar with CUNY, what used to be called CCNY. It's City University of New York. It's one of the largest public college education systems in the country. And the tuitions are crazy low. This kind of idea has spread more and more in the United States as a way for school to be extremely affordable, leading into a good career path. And I'm not even mentioning the opportunities that exist that don't require college, but I've covered that a lot recently, so I won't get into that now. One thing I want you to avoid, like the plague, private student loans. Private student loans. The interest rates and terms on private student loans are so hideous, it's why they account for only 7% of the loan market. 93% is in the federal student loan program. So the marketplace has spoken, and the taxpayer subsidies, right or wrong, provided on student loans make them so superior, so preferable to private student loans. Do not take them out. Last thing, if you are in federal student loans, you've now had to resume payments. Know that there are a number of ways now that are brand new that did not exist prior to COVID. The COVID holiday that started back in 20 and continued for three plus years. The new payment plans being offered are far more favorable to students than were offered before. And the rules on ultimate loan forgiveness in return for meeting your commitments to pay loans, far more clear and far more accessible than they were before. If you're not aware of this, you don't know what's available to you. Go to the website of the U.S. Department of Education and look at the availability with the new student loan payment plans, because odds are they fit you and fit you well. Krista? All
1: right, this first question is from Ryan in North Dakota. I have a car loan that I've been paying about three times the minimum payment on to save interest. Every extra payment pushes my next due date into the future relative to the amount extra paid. I've heard paying off the loan early could negatively affect my credit score in the short term. Would it be wise to leave the loan open with a very small amount, $50, of principal remaining in order to keep it open on my credit report for longer. I'm currently on track to pay off the loan two years early, and I'm looking at buying a house in that time frame.
0: Okay, first of all, your discipline with how you're handling this is fantastic. Second, I think your lender is mistreating you. They are treating it as a prepaid monthly loan payment instead of a prepayment of interest. I want you to go find your loan document for your vehicle loan. What you see, is interest calculated as simple interest? Simple interest means that the interest is recalculated every time you make an additional principal payment, and every dollar you paid no longer has a dollar of interest against it. There are unethical vehicle lenders, there are banks that are dishonest, that when you prepay this paying three months at a time instead of one month at a time, what they're doing is they're putting the money almost like into suspense, not giving you credit for it against principal, and you end up paying all the interest you'd have to pay on the loan, even if you took the full period of time to pay it off. In other words, they're cheating you. Now, if your loan document says that they are using one of two dishonest, awful methods of calculating interest, known as rule of 78s or sum of digits, instead of either of those, instead of saying simple interest, then the lender gives you no benefit for prepaying on the loan. The big benefit to you is you've eliminated the debt on a much quicker schedule, but you got no interest benefit for it like you should have. If It turns out that your loan is a simple interest loan. You need to contact the lender and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and get that loan recalculated, showing those as not prepayments against future months, but as prepayment of principal on your loan, showing the lower loan balance, and in turn, a wiping out of an enormous amount of interest you would owe on the loan. If this is confusing to you in any way, go Google, or whatever search engine you use, rule of 78, sum of digits, and simple interest. And you'll have an explanation that'll make it clear how the lender, if you have a simple interest loan, is cheating you by how they're not properly applying those additional payments. As for feeling a need to leave a small balance open, you don't need to do that. You will have shown a good record with an auto loan, paying it as agreed, and that will be part of your credit history. You're reducing the amount of obligation on that loan, which improves your underwriting for the mortgage loan you're taking out on a home. If you don't have credit cards yet, more than six months before you buy a home, I want you to get at least one credit card I'd prefer to use them sparingly but I want you to have more types of credit than just that vehicle loan.
1: Josh in Massachusetts says I rarely rent cars but I've always declined insurance tolls and gas. This latest trip I was told by budget that I would need to submit a receipt within five miles of the airport on the day I returned to the vehicle in order to decline prepaid gas. I panicked not knowing where to get gas on the morning of our flight home and paid for the gas up front. Is this requirement common?
0: So Josh, the five mile thing, have no idea where that came from. I've had uh, multiple occasions where I've been told if I don't take the gas option, I have to bring back the gas receipt, and I always do. The funny thing is, I have never once been asked for the gas receipt. The five mile thing became a thing Years and years and years ago, when Denver Airport moved from Stapleton Field, which was adjacent to downtown Denver, to the prairies northeast quite a distance from the city of Denver, and there were no gas stations near the airport. So they would say you had to bring a gas receipt, and there they actually checked, because if you filled up in Denver, by the time you got to the airport, you didn't have a full tank anymore. You're looking at me like I'm Clark crazy.
1: trivia. No, I just, that's, I didn't know that story. You learn something new every day on the Clark Howard podcast for sure. How about that? That's so, crazy.
0: Yeah. You know what DIA Denver International Airport, you know what DIA stood for for two years? No. Doesn't include airplanes. <laughs> they had a baggage system at Denver that had never been used anywhere in the world before and it didn't work. And so they had built this massive, magnificent airport. And they couldn't use it for a couple of years because you could only do carry-on luggage if you flew in or out of there. And so that is another piece of DIA trivia, but they conned you, strong-arming you on the gas thing. Every time you're offered or pushed to prepay fuel, the answer is thank you, but no thank you because it's designed to be a massive ripoff of your wallet. And just always remember, fill the vehicle, get the receipt before you return to the airport terminal. And video with your phone, video the outside of your vehicle. And as we've heard twice recently, video the inside of the vehicle too, showing that the condition is great when you return the vehicle.
1: And I just want to say about the gas thing, I know most people probably know this, but the way they trick you here is that they charge you for a full tank of gas. So unless you bring that car back on fumes, you're getting ripped off, basically. That's exactly right. Jason in Ohio says, following your advice, I no longer use my debit card anywhere. My question is, is it safer to use the debit card option through Apple Pay, such as paying for breakfast at McDonald's using the mobile app and selecting my debit card in Apple Pay rather than using my Apple card. Thanks for all your advice.
0: Okay, so Apple Pay is awesome. Google Pay, what they now call G-Pay, awesome. Samsung Pay, awesome. They are very, very solidly secure platforms, vastly superior to tapping with your credit card or inserting your card because they generate one-time use codes so that even a criminal has hacked into the payment System at the place you're buying, you're good. So using a debit card for walking around transactions, like using, you're so brilliant to use the McDonald's app because of all the freebies and points and discounts you get. But anyway, that's another issue. Using Apple Pay with your debit card at McDonald's, just fine to do as it would be at any fast food. Yes, I did say that it was okay to use a debit card. And I did hit my head yesterday (laughs) because the debit card I call the piece of trash, fake Visa, fake MasterCard, because you don't have normal consumer protections, but it would be hard to think about scenarios that would be horrible that would go wrong at McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or In-N-Out or Whataburger or wherever, Culver's, all these really great places to Mm -hmm. eat that are very healthy. I remember when you went with me to In and Out once yeah. being nice, you got their vegetarian sandwich. Do yeah. you remember that?
1: Yeah, basically it's like cheese on a bun with French fries.
0: And lettuce and lettuce and uh, tomato uh, and stuff, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's their version of vegetarian. Their
1: fries are good. I'm not Oh, sure I why. can't
0: stand the fries. They're freshly in-N-N-Out. cut.
1: They're freshly made. Yeah,
0: they taste like nothing. You want a good French fry? I'm not really a French fry person. Oh, I am. I'm not a French fry guy, but I think McDonald's fries.
1: They are are, are ridiculously good. good. And you know that that's because of whatever chemicals are in them that make them. But yeah, McDonald's fries are my kryptonite.
0: Meaning that that they're a weak spot for you. You got to have them. Yeah.
1: Like I don't go to McDonald's, but my son will go sometimes. And if he's trying to butter me up, he'll bring me a small fry from there because he knows that I love them so much.
0: Yeah. French fries, for some reason, don't speak to me. But anyway, thank you for joining us today. And we're ending on a lighter note on a day for many of us. It's such a a somber day. So I ask you, what can you do for your community, for your neighborhood, for your city, your state, your country? What can you do to make this country we live in a better place? ultimately that's what's so great is we hear in the news we read we see so many things that go wrong but so many things that people are doing that are right we don't see the reality is changes that you and i can make happen make things better so today why don't you resolve to volunteer somewhere or do something that will make your neighborhood or our society better And know what we're about here. We're about helping you save more, spend less, and avoid getting ripped off. Have a great rest of your day.